Have you ever lost your appetite? Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, maybe you're eating. I was eating this week, and I was eating a salad, and it was delicious. And I saw a hair in my salad. And I thought to myself, what is this hair doing here? And I removed the hair, and I was able to continue eating the salad. It didn't uh, leave that much of a mental uh, block. On the other hand, I have a, a very vivid memory, remembrance or memory when I was a kid uh, at a friend's house. We were having ice cream, and there we were, two boys just sitting, eating our ice cream, having a great time in the summer. And out of nowhere, a moth flies into my ice cream <laughs> and just kind of, I mean, the ice cream was kind of melted, and it just flew in and was kind of covered up by the ice cream, and I couldn't see the moth, but I knew it was there. And I remember saying to my friend, I don't want this anymore. I just, I've lost my appetite. And I couldn't even explain it to my friend because I was the only one who saw the moth and he wasn't paying attention and I was just like, I don't think I want this. Uh, another, another example of losing your appetite, but maybe not in a, uh, in a hunger sense, would be uh, recently I was into this really gripping TV series and... Uh, kind of had you on the edge of your seat. You know, all the Hollywood movies or TV shows these days are um, really good at just, you know, they end the episode and you're just like, I want to watch the next one now. That's why we have what's called binge watching, right? We've all been there. We've, well, I think most of us have been there. We've all uh, had an, an enormous appetite for entertainment. And I certainly was there recently. And it was the end of the week. It was a Friday. Um, you know, put the kids down to bed. It was time to go watch it, and I was just like, I can't wait to see what happens next. And as, as I turn it on, it's coming on, and I'm like, okay. But there's a warning on the rating of, the, of said show that said it's rated, I don't know what it was rated, but it was for sexual content and nudity and all these other things. And at that moment, I, it, just, it just hit me in a way that it hasn't hit me um, in a lot of other times, but I, I just thought, man, you know, this really saps my, my joy and my strength to want to watch this because I know that that content is put there in order to excite lust for somebody that's not my wife. And man, that's a bummer. That just, that just really uh, kind of deflates my excitement for the show. And I, I made the decision there not to watch it. I, I was watching it myself and I don't have my wife there to, you know, say, hey, look away, you know, during a scene that you shouldn't look at or something like that. But um, man, that was a bummer. But it truly, in, in my mind, I was, I was just thinking, man, I just, I'm not as excited for this show anymore. I don't even want to go there. And that was that. So that's an example of, uh, of losing your appetite for something that is not uh, per se something you're going to eat. But here's the point. It's discouraging and it's disheartening when something spoils what was otherwise a good and beautiful thing, right? And this is the sense that the author of Genesis has left us with in the opening chapters of, of the book. God created a world that was very good. He says it's very good. And mankind was the pinnacle of his creation. But Adam and Eve sinned, and their sin spoiled that perfect state that caused God to look at creation and say that it was very good. Things escalate quickly in the book of Genesis, and uh, within the first five chapters, we, we learn of um, wicked and immoral men. We, we see Cain and Abel, and we see how Cain murders his brother Abel. We see the results of sin running rampant in a fight. Uh, 
a polluted world. And then we get to Genesis 6, and I'm not going to preach a sermon on that because David Lee will uh, teach us next week. But God regrets making the world that he made, and he destroys it with a flood, except for one person, his family, Noah, and he starts again, right? So Genesis has opened up in these opening chapters, showing us that God created the world good. He loves mankind. He made mankind the pinnacle of his creation, but mankind has sinned, and sin multiplies itself. It's like a hair in your soup that doesn't just stay one hair in your soup. It actually expands and multiplies, and now you have too many hairs in the soup. Now you don't even want the soup anymore. It's like a virus that's out of control. Nobody knows how to stop it. Sin ruins things and spoils it, and that's what we see in the opening chapters of Genesis. But as we get to our passage today, Genesis 11, we are just coming off the heels of the flood and God's new start with Noah. And God has said in Genesis 9, I am not ever going to destroy the whole earth with a flood again. And he makes a promise that that will not occur. He, he sets the stage for his grand story of redemption. And we, we're, we're all looking to see what's going to happen. Is sin going to multiply and spread itself like it did before? And as, as we read about the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, you guys can turn there if you haven't already. Genesis 11, I want you to hear this. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's a divine commentary I think we should have in the back of our minds that is so succinct, such a powerful and applicable truth that God has stated it three times in Scripture. Proverbs 3.34 says, To the scorners he is scornful, but he gives grace to the humble. Uh, We see it in in, the the Holy Spirit inspired uh, the pen of James, who tells us in James 4, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And 1 Peter 5, 5, the Apostle Peter even repeats that for us. When God says something three times, we got to listen, right? That's the commentary that we need to have in the back of our minds on Genesis 11. So we'll see in this story God's opposition to proud humanity and the sinful, rebellious ambition of his creatures, as well as his gracious response to mutiny in his creation. And one of the truths that we'll wrestle with is how God is gracious even in his judgment. So let's turn to the text now and begin to see how humanity's sin has continued to multiply and spoil this bowl of soup. So I read in Genesis 11.1, 1, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And this is an important uh, transition statement from what came before because it tells us what this story is about. It's about how mankind was unified at this time, shortly after the flood, and they all had the same language and the same words. We're going to see uh, these themes keyed, on, keyed in on here in Genesis 11. But notice that if, you, if you're a good student and you've read your Bible, what came before was Genesis 10, and that is the table of nations. And in 
Genesis 10.5, it says, From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans and their nations. 10.20 says, These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And 10.31 says, These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So you might be tempted to think, Okay, what's going on here? We just saw in Genesis 10 that everybody had their own languages. Why is it saying that everybody has the same language in Genesis 11? That's because we don't have to read it chronologically in 10 and 11, okay? It's not intended to be that way. In fact, Genesis 10 is a summary of everything that happens when by God's good purpose and God's good design, humanity spreads out. And now we're coming back and we're previewing something before that, a very specific story that couldn't be summarized easily. Why is Genesis 10 before Genesis 11? Well, I think one reason, it's, it's sort of an inference, but I think it's, it's a good one, is that God is showing that his plan for humanity to spread out and multiply the earth and be divided into to clans and nations with their own languages, it's actually a good plan. It's not something that happened just because mankind sinned, but we'll see in Genesis 11 that the way it's described is that it is in response to the sin of mankind. Now, to further my point that it is part of God's good plan, I'll just remind you of Genesis 9 chapter, or Genesis chapter 9 verse 1, where when Noah and his sons get off the ark, he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There's the command. Did you see it? Fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's the command of God. That is his design. That's his intention. So now we, we keep reading in verse 2. It says, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Okay, so everybody has one language, the same words. They are uh, traveling perhaps from the east or maybe to the east. Some translations will say to the east. In fact, the ESV says they migrated from the east. That's what I'm reading out of. The King James Version is similar. It says they journeyed from the east. Uh, if you have the New American Standard version, it will say they journeyed east. So rather than coming from the east, they're actually going eastward. And the NIV is also similar. It says they moved eastward. So why the discrepancy? Why do some translations say that they're coming from the east and some, some say they're going uh, in an eastward direction? And I'll admit, I don't really know. I've, I have read on, on, on both sides and... Uh, it could be either, but let me, let me just pull it to what I think is a, a, a relevant observation. Uh, you know, I don't think it really matters if they're going eastward or if they're coming, you know, from the east where the ark was, unless, you, you know, unless you're an archaeologist and you want to go find the ark and then try to find the Tower of Babel, and some have, and some are doing really good work, and, you know, I always love reading stuff like that. But I do think that the mention of east is significant, Okay, I think the fact that the author is cluing us in to an eastward direction reminds us of Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and fell, and God banished them from the garden because sin has no place with God, and they are no longer able to enjoy the presence of God. And where did he drive them? It specifically says he drove them east. He drove them to the east, outside the garden. And we'll actually see in God's redemption, if we follow the biblical storyline, we'll see that God sets up this, uh, this people, Israel, and they're supposed to be a light to the nations, and he sets up his temple where, where man and God can commune again, and the temple faces what direction? It faces east, because it's inviting humanity to come back to God. And there's so much hope in this, 
But I do think this is a subtle clue, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to make the, the biggest uh, deal of this if I'm wrong, but I do think that the mention of East is just getting us ready and setting the stage for us to understand that something that would happen from a fallen situation is about to go down. And in fact, that's also confirmed when we just consider that the place that's described is the land of Shinar. They settled, it says they settled in the land of Shinar. Where have we heard the land of Shinar before? Well, perhaps you've read this or perhaps I'm introducing it for the first time. In Genesis 10, uh, chapter, uh, verse 8, it says that Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And I used to read this verse and I thought, oh, a mighty hunter. I'm a hunter, you know. But I soon learned <laughs> through my studying, Nimrod was not a great guy. He was, he was a hunter before the Lord in the sense that he was a hunter in opposition to the Lord. He was hunting men, okay? Uh, lots of scholars think that he could be equated with perhaps one of the early empire builders like Sargon. And it's actually quite possible um, but we learn that, that Nimrod is, is opposed to God. He's hunting men. It's, it's a uh, biographical note that's added by the author into this description of the nations as they're spreading out. And he takes good time to mention it. But it's, it's showing that the land of Shinar is a place that you should already have your suspicions raised, okay? It's a place where uh, people who are not so good come from, okay? So when we get to Genesis 11, we find out that, okay, whatever's about to happen is happening in the land of Shinar. It's in the east. It's where humanity was driven away from the garden. All right, so that's our, that's our introduction. All right, so verse 3. Verse 3 of chapter 11. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So we can unpack these two verses to see the reasoning and get some insight into the prideful tendency at the core of humanity since the inception of our race. Because remember, the thing we're supposed to have in the back of our heads is God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. How do we see pride in these first couple verses of, uh, of their reasoning in, chapters three, in verses 3 and 4? Well, we see the ambition of man. We see a desire for undue access to the realm of the divine. They say, let us reach for the heavens. Let's, let's build a tower for ourselves that we can literally touch the heavens ourselves. And it's unclear whether this is to bring God down so that he can come. We do have examples of uh, ziggurats throughout the world and particularly in uh, the region of Mesopotamia where this would have been. And uh, we see some religious things going on there. We see uh, temples placed at the top of these ziggurats as if the gods are supposed to come down and take a rest. And uh, it, I mean, it really just highlights the folly of man. Not clear if it's to bring the gods down or to bring humanity up to God in some way. I just summarize it as this. It's a desire for undue access to the realm of the divine. This shows man's ambition the ambition that lies deep within man from his nature because of sin, right? 
driven by sinful rebellion, man wants to elevate himself to the status of God. I think we see this clearly in many attempts throughout history, um, and even in the world we're living in right now, for uh, various celebrities and leaders to lust after power and authority. Um, People crave adoration from the masses, and, and they want people to be their loyal subjects, right? Why is it? Why do we want to be worshiped so much? Why do people want to be worshipped? Because of our pride. Because of the pride which God is opposed to. I see this same kind of pride, this, this uh, self-exalting pride in my own life in funny little moments like when I'm at home working on a project and uh, something doesn't go according to plan. You know, just yesterday I was uh, trying to... Uh, trying to work on a little construction project, shall we say, and things weren't going my way. The tools weren't working, and things were falling apart, and I was quite upset about this. I had a, a moment of uh, losing my temper, uh, and by God's grace, it was just a private thing. I didn't uh, lash out at anyone around me, um, but I thought about this, and I thought, man, this is a great illustration of how pride creeps into our daily living, because... In this moment, when I'm getting frustrated and getting angry, and I, you know, I just feel my, my skin about to boil over, I'm, I'm getting angry out of this sense that my will must be done, and my will is not being done right now. How dare that ever happen, right? That is a great offense to me, that my will is not being exercised fully as it ought to be. And of course, there are many reasons why things didn't go right, and most of them were probably because of my failure and my stupidity. But re- really, ultimately, I'm getting mad at myself, but where the pride comes in is that I'm thinking, no, this ought to be done my way, and I'm mad that it's not being done my way. My will be done, right? What did God say? What, what did Jesus say? Your will be done, right? Jesus is the example of humility for us. The Lord does have a funny way of bringing me back to my senses when I do lose my temper, and uh, he does remind me of how silly... I must look to the God who ordains all things and cares for even the smallest of my needs, and I contribute nothing to that. Secondly, another way we see pride in this verse, in in verse 4, is we see that they say, let us make a name for ourselves. So transparently, this is an attempt for uh, sinful self-exaltation. And it certainly is something that is frowned upon in Scripture, right? The Lord lifts up, we are told. The Lord lifts up, so we ought to let him lift us up. We shouldn't seek for our own exaltation of ourselves, right? But there's more than that. It's also this this statement, let us make a name for ourselves, contextually does show that they have really rebellious motives, Okay? Um, and I'm, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to make you turn there. But Genesis 6, we get this funny little story about the sons of God. And there's a lot of debate over who they are. You know, what, what are they angels? Are they, um, are they something else? Um, but there's a rebellion that goes on in Genesis 6, right before the flood. And the, the outcome of this rebellion between the sons of God and the daughters of men is that these people are created. They are birthed out of these, uh, this union, this rebellious union. And they are known as the men of renown. That's the little note that the author of Genesis gives us. The men of renown. 
In Hebrew, it's better translated the men of a name. Men of a name, right? So this this desire for these, these wicked men in Genesis 11 to make a name for ourselves. Yeah, it certainly is self-exaltation, self-glorification, but they are also identifying with the people who before the flood were seeking to rebel outright against Yahweh and his authority. I'll let, I'll let David cover that next week in more depth for us. But here, here in verse, verses 3 and 4, we see that the remnants of the curse are alive and well, even after the flood. Even after God has gotten this new start with Noah and his sons, the remnants of the curse are still there because of humanity's sin. And even though it's been wiped out, evil has gained a foothold in people's hearts, so much so that men are seeking the same uh, rebellion in the same spirit as those that came before them. And we see sin spoiling creation. Now, the, the third element of sin that we see in this verse, in verse 4, is we see an overt statement that directly contradicts the command of the Creator given to Noah and his family. You'll remember that I read Genesis 9-1 to you, where God said to Noah, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Fill the earth. Go out into all the earth. Utilize it right? God doesn't just want to stand in the Middle East. He wants you to expand and go to the various continents and, you know, send your expedition voyages out there, okay? There's much for you to see, much for you to do. What do they say? They say, let's build this tower, let's build this city, let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, They're saying the reason that we're going to do this, the goal, the ultimate aim, is that we will not be spread out into these various regions, right? It's an attempt to uh, establish a sense of security in this common bond of unity, and it directly contradicts the Creator's command, which is to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, right? And, And this is something that pride does to us, right? Pride causes us to turn the muzzle of our gun directly around and point it straight at the Creator. Opposes exactly what He has called us to. Right? And that's part of why God is opposed to the proud. It's not just that God is out to get people who don't do what He says. No. We are the ones who turn against God. We're running and clashing with Him when we disregard His commands. That's what we see here in Genesis 11. This is what happened when humanity decided, let's do things our way. Let's rebel against God. Let's pursue that pride deep down inside us, and let's let it come to fruition in the worst possible way. Now, let's see the Lord's response in verse 5. And I I love verse (laughs) 5. Verse 5 is not only the uh, turning point in... um, in, the, in this story, it's a very uh, poetic, but also a very funny, very funny situation, okay? <laughs> because here we see humanity in its pomp going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build this tower up into the heavens, and I'm going to be great, and, you know, everybody's going to see how great we are. And it says that the, <laughs> the Lord came down. And that's, that's as funny in your Hebrew Bible as it is in your English Bible. <laughs> the Lord actually had to come down to see what's going on. Like, yeah, you, you, you think you've built this tower that's all impressive, but 
God can't even see it until he uh, steps off his throne and comes down to see what the little people are doing. Oh, look at you. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And I love that it's affection, they're, they're affectionately translated as the children of man. It's the, the sons of Adam in Hebrew. Um, it just reminds me of my kids, right? And uh, sometimes how, how cute and, well, let's just be honest, sometimes pathetic their little efforts are. Uh, oftentimes I have to tell Hazel to clean up your mess because you've left a lot of toys all over the place. And uh, sometimes I give her an incentive and I say, you know what? I'm going to give you ice cream if you clean up this entire room, okay? Because, man, she can make a disaster. You'll, you'll think that a tornado came through there. You'll think that a flood, that, that's, a, that's a more appropriate. I mean, she can get her toys just spread out all over the place, and um, we're getting to the point now where we're like, you know what, we're not going to clean that up for her. We need to help her learn that she needs to clean up too. But it's so funny. Sometimes, you know, she'll be working for five minutes, and I'll be off in the other room, and then I'll come back, and she'll be like, Daddy, I cleaned up! And she's like, put two toys away or something like that. I'm like, oh, Hazel, you have much to learn. You, you, you see your efforts as so, uh, you know, so effective, but you have, uh, you have a long way to go. And I think, of, I think of the Lord coming down and seeing man kind of playing with his blocks and building this big old tower. And what might seem from our perspective to, see this, to be this great thing, in God's eyes, I mean, he sees it for what it is, right? It is rebellion, but it's also kind of laughable that they have such grand designs, but they're not even getting close to attaining their desire. But then what does the Lord say about this in verse 6? The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. I do want to explain this verse, but let me go back to Genesis 3.22 and just show you something that is, shall we say, a pattern. The Lord, when he sees humanity doing these destructive things of rebellion, right? He has a way of assessing it and identifying exactly what the issue is and addressing it. And in Genesis 3.22, right after the, the man and the woman had sinned, they had uh, disobeyed by eating from the fruit of the one tree in the garden that they were forbidden from eating. Look what God says in 3.22. He starts very similarly. Behold, right? Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And the reason I go there, the reason that I go to Genesis 3.22 to show you that there's a similar kind of assessment and then God reacts and does something is because this is a theme that we're now seeing in two major moments of rebellion in humanity as humanity turns against the creator is that God comes down and he assesses it and his plan to counteract it is actually to stop the worst from happening, right? He said in Genesis 3.22, lest he eat from the tree of life and live forever in this sinful state with no hope of being brought back to God, let us banish him from the garden so that he, there's no chance he can get a hold of that tree. We see a similar kind of thing here in Genesis 11 in verse 6 
when it says, behold, they're one people, they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they'll do. Nothing that they propose will now be impossible for them. And by the way, I have to, I have to say this, because I, I wondered about it myself. Uh, he's not saying that, oh, humanity is having a great uh, track record of success here. They're going to overthrow me if I don't do something. No, it's not, it's not that sort of sense of impossibility. It's, it's the sense of nothing will be withheld of all the evil which they can imagine. Humanity, when they put their minds together, when they do it in such a rebellious way, they can devise even worse sin than this. And it can lead to even worse of a messing up of things than just this act of rebellion right here. God is saying, let's address this now. Let's address it. Verse 7, he says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. This is the divine response. Divine response to the unified rebellion of humanity saying, let us, let us rebel against the Creator. Let us go our own way. And let us achieve the apex and the logical outcome of what this rebellion would look like. God is saying, no. I have a better plan and he judges them. He does judge them. He confuses their language. So can you imagine if you're out there stacking bricks one day, right? You're working up, and you look over, and you ask for a brick, and your buddy just has this blank face, right? And he says, okay. <laughs> okay, say, right? Imagine, I mean, when I, when I think about this moment in history— it's one of those things where I would, I would just love to be there. I would, I would love to have seen how this all played out. And uh, who knows how many languages actually came out of this. I'm sure some people probably spoke the same one. And, you know, you could say, you know, maybe there were 70 languages because there's 70 nations in the Table of Nations in Genesis 10, and maybe that's uh, correct. But can you just imagine being there in this situation where there's this just utter chaos? If you've ever been to, like, an international airport, uh, you've probably sensed a little bit of... Uh, the weakness and just the vulnerability that you feel when you're in a place where not everybody speaks the same and has the same, uh, you know, thoughts and, and, you know, cultural background as you do. Or if you've ever been in another country, you feel this especially. I've, I've been to, to foreign countries. I've been to Ukraine. I've been to Belarus. Um, I don't speak Russian. Well, I, I speak a little bit. Nimnoga, right? That's what they say, a little, a little Russian. Um, but I've been in situations where I'm like, if I get lost here... I can go start talking to somebody, and they're not going to understand what I'm saying unless they speak English. Um, but it, it does lead to this great, um, this great chasm, right? You're not able to communicate. How are you going to get things done if you can't communicate with somebody? Communication is so key. We don't even think about it because we all, we all just live among English speakers, right? I'm sure some of us have worked with uh, people from a with a, with a foreign language, and you've learned some of the joys of figuring each other out. But that takes time, that takes discipline, that takes practice. When humanity was one, when they all had one language, when it was split, this was the first time anyone had ever had anything like that, and it must have been shocking, right? It must have been disorienting, and it, it certainly would have been uh, something that would cause a major disruption to everything that was going on. And it did. It says that in, uh, in verse 7, 
or rather verse 8, it says that they, they left off building the city. It was, it was a strong enough disruption that it actually caused them to stop what they were doing, and they weren't able to complete their project, right? So we see that this is a judgment on humanity, something that would be, be very disorienting and would, would cause all these problems, but we see that there is much grace even in the judgment. And that's, that's something that I want you to understand about God's justice is that when God judges us, when God judges his sinful people, he does it in a way that is not, um, shall we say, just vindictive totally. He's not just out to make us learn a lesson, right? In fact, we see throughout Scripture, throughout the pages of Scripture, many times where the Lord is always offering us a way back to him. And he's, he's creating these, these responses to our sin that is just begging for us to come back and leaving the opportunity there. I think of, of Cain's uh, rebellion against, uh, by, by uh, murdering his brother Abel. And God's response there, if you study it, is very, very gracious. Even though Cain has just committed the first murder, God goes to him and reasons with him and talks with him. And uh, it's, it's really beautiful the way that the Lord judges that sin and does appropriately deal with it. There must be justice because God is good and just, but he offers him incredible mercy even in that. And we don't have time to get into it, so I'm not going to go there. But needless to say, no, actually, I do need to say this. I do need to say this, that God is gracious even in his judgment. What he's doing here is he is driving his plan forward, which we know that his plan is always the best, right? Let's just stop and sit and thank God that his plan is always the best and that he is able to accomplish it despite our, our evil and our, our pursuit of evil. Even, even a wicked society that is turned against him, God can still drive his purposes and his plans forward. And this is encouraging for me and the, the culture that we're living in because I look out at the world today and I see many ways in which our, our, our culture and uh, you know, people are, are turning against God in so many different ways that they can conceive. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to be specific here, but there are, there are just, there's lots of conflict in the world, and I wonder, you know, how could this lead to anything good? It seems like it's getting worse. But I know, God has a plan. God has a purpose. I see it in stories like the Tower of Babel, where God was able to take that wicked response of humanity, he's able to turn it around, his response drives forward his plan, it does lead to judgment, but... Ultimately, this is good for humanity because God's plan is going to carry forward. And God absolutely has plans for nations. And that's what we're going to see in the rest of Genesis. God has a plan for nations. In fact, I think it's very significant that this story closes out this section of Genesis. Did you know that there's actually chapter markers in Genesis? And, and I'm, I'm not... okay. I'm not saying in your English Bibles, those numbers that you see, chapter 11 and verses, those, those were added later. But in the, in the original text of Scripture, there are divisions in the book of Genesis. And they are perceived much in the same way that an English writer might perceive um, paragraph breaks, things like that, that signal to you, okay, this is uh, beginning of a new unit. This story of the Tower of Babel 
is the end of a unit of scripture, of Genesis, and it's actually right on the verge of the beginning of a new one that occurs in the very next verse in 11.10, where it says, these are the generations of Shem. If you just read through your English Bible in Genesis, you'll come across this many times, this, this statement, these are the generations of so-and-so. These are generations of the heaven and earth. These are generations of Adam and Eve, and so forth. This statement here, these are the generations of Shem, is the beginning of a new unit. And not only that, it is a very, very significant unit. Okay, now let me, let me explain this. I'm going to illustrate it for you. Genesis 1 through 4 begins, and it details the creation. You know, God made the whole earth. Hugely significant thing in history, right? It details uh, humanity's fall. Adam and Eve took and ate of the fruit that they should not have, and they were banished from the garden and Cain's sin. That all happens in the first four chapters, right? Four chapters. And then the next division is about Adam and his lineage. It's pretty much just a genealogy, but it's chapter 5. It's about that big, relatively speaking. Okay, so we have the beginning of Genesis, the opening chapters. We have Adam and his lineage after that. Oh, and then next comes the story of the flood, all the way through the Tower of Babel, which we've been studying today. And it's about this big, okay? So we've gotten quite a ways in Genesis. We have a lot of content here, if you just imagine that each of these chapters are these books. The next chapter that's coming up is this one right here. How's that for a nice big book right there, right? Yeah, you're noticing something. It's much bigger than all these others. And that is significant because what's being emphasized in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, is what happens in this book right here, this big one. It's the story of Shem's line and Shem's descendants, and there's one particular descendant that, is, that sort of takes center stage, and that's Abraham. Abraham and God's promises to him and his descendants. We, have, we do have Jacob in, in chapters 37 through 50, also a big book, but not as big as this one. But still, it's Abraham and his sons. We see that God is going to redeem the nations that have gone against him, and he's going to do it through this man, Abraham. And I wish I could explain the significance of Abraham. He's so important, but I want to show you this, and then I want to help you by looking at the last closing chapter, closing verses of chapter 11. This is the next thing that happens after the Tower of Babel, after God had dispersed humanity into their various nations, carrying forward his plan. And remember, remember that God Remember that God is responding to these people who are seeking to make a name for themselves. So in Genesis 11, we see uh, in verse 27, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. So we're reading a genealogy, right? It's starting with one man and his descendants. Verse 28 says, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of, the, of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. We're going to stop right there because against the, the backdrop of this genealogy that is run from verse 10, This is a startling statement. It stands out. Sarai had no children. 
And when I say that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble, the humble are the ones who, who have nothing to offer, right? They are weak. They, they are not the ones that are making a great name of themselves. They're not uh, seeking to put themselves out there, and they're not uh, self-sufficient, shall we say. And of course, I will acknowledge we do see elements of self-sufficiency in the story of Abraham's life, but I want to just clue you into this. At the start of Abraham's life, a very significant thing is that his wife, Sarai, was barren. She had no child. They couldn't get pregnant. That is, that is just a, a, a sad, difficult situation for anybody to work with, but particularly when you consider the context of this is the beginning of the world. This is how the generations spread out. This is how we remember people. These are how names get propagated. Abraham does not have a child. And that's the backdrop that God enters in Genesis 12 and says to Abraham, verse 2, the hope. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is so much goodness of God's promise in those verses. I wish I could preach another sermon, but I know you guys would all fall asleep. Um, But I do want to just just point out, God says, I'm going to make your name great to Abraham. This is what we want. (laughs) This is what we should want, rather. We shouldn't seek to make a name for ourselves, like the sinful people at Babel, We want to be humble. In fact, James 4 says, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you, right? The Lord is the one who chooses whom to exalt. It's futile to resist him. Futile to resist him, as we've seen in the Tower of Babel. Okay, so what do we do with all this information from Genesis 11? I'm going to give you three points of application, okay? The first one is mortify your own pride. Mortify, put to death, kill your own pride. This is a daily struggle it ought to be a daily struggle uh, if, you're, if you're a functioning human being, and I certainly am. I have to do this every day. We kill our own pride um, through a couple different ways. Well, one is self-examination. So think about your life and the things that you've done and, and think, think to yourself, you know, if I've done that in a way that is seeking to exalt myself and make my name great, um, and I, I mean... Any day, I could get to the end of the day and think of many, many opportunities uh, where pride enters into various situations. Um, It enters into my conversations and ruins them. Uh, It enters into my relationships uh, with all people and uh, makes them something less than they could be. Um, But it really is this wicked thing. But we do need to examine ourselves to understand if we're prideful, right? And that should be a posture um, daily. I don't, I don't want to make you overly introspective like I am, but we do need to examine ourselves to understand if we are behaving in a way that is rebellious towards our Creator. But also, there's another way to do this. Also receive the examination of others. Be willing to have an open heart to others who point out various flaws in your life. It is very difficult for somebody who's very prideful to listen to somebody who has something critical to say of that person, right? I experienced this many times. But Proverbs 17.10 reminds us that a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a thousand blows into a fool. So if you want to be a wise man, sometimes it just takes being quiet and listening 
right? And listening to constructive feedback from others, even if it's wrong, even if it's not the best feedback, it is still wise to listen to that, to ponder on it, to chew it, and maybe there's something good there for you, right? Humble yourself before the Lord. That's James 4. So the first way that we, the first thing that we should do in response to this uh, story that tells us about our ancestors going back to the Tower of Babel is first we mortify our own pride. Secondly, we need to pray for the proud. Pray for the proud. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about people, in, especially in our culture, right? Um, we, somehow we've gotten to this point in our society where uh, pride is celebrated as a virtue? How can that be? I mean, I, un- I understand, like, we do want to, you know, build others up, and we don't want to kill self-esteem in a way that people just look down on themselves so much that uh, they don't even want to live life or anything like that. But I think we've gotten excessive when we have an entire month dedicated to this thing called pride, right? And in fact, if you, if you analyze what's going on there, it is a very kind of wicked, in-your-face kind of turn it against the creator situation that Pride Month celebrates. But I just want to say, we need to pray for the proud. We need to pray for them. We need to, when we see pride in others, we need, to, we need to pray for them. Because it's not your job to resist them. It's not your job to be God's opposition, right? God is opposed to the proud, yes. He's not using you to oppose them. He will oppose them, but... Ultimately, we shouldn't desire that God is going to oppose them to their, to their destruction, right? We should pray that God is going to humble them because that's going to lead to opportunities for grace to flow in, right? God gives grace to the humble. So mortify your pride, pray for the proud. And then number three, exalt the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His greatness, God's greatness, and his name which is above every name, overwhelms our inflated self-esteem. So when I lead us in worship, and I, and I pray that the Lord keeps me on a, on a steady path on this, I want more than anything for you guys to see God's greatness and be able to ponder it and say, yes, I want to follow God because he is very great. And that should lead to humility. That should lead to us humbly bowing before him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your great goodness to us. Thank you for your, your grace and mercy, even when you do judge sin. And God, I thank you that you are opposed to the proud, and I've experienced this in my life, Lord, when I, uh, even this week, have experienced uh, situations uh, relying on myself, trusting in myself, um, seeking ways that I might not even be able to see, but are, are going against what your plan is. And God, I thank you that you are a gracious God who redeems and that you are even able to humble those who are proud. And so I pray that, um, I, I pray for those who are proud that they would humble themselves and they would not have to face the judgment that comes that is a result of their sin, Lord, but that they would experience your grace that would rush in the same redeeming grace that led you to choose a man like Abraham through whom you would bless the world. And it is through his seed, through the ultimate redeemer that came through him, through Jesus, Lord, that we have a way back to God, back to the garden and all of its delights. Lord, we long for this and we praise you. Amen.